0: Holy crap, am I excited about my guest this week. You may not be, but I don't care. I can be excited enough for all of us. Plus, we learn a lot about AI, so there's that. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Doubt. And friends, let me just tell you, I could say I was excited or geeked or giggling like a schoolgirl at the thought of my guest today, but none of those would quite do it justice. Lawrence Maroney is an AI evangelist over at Google, and he worked with executive producer Brad Wright to build an all new Stargate scripts using AI and machine learning. He's a huge fan of Stargate, and so am I. So we basically spent 40 minutes just hardcore nerding out about stargate and ai in general of course if you're not a patron you'll only get 20 minutes of it for now but the rest will come later but it's such a fun conversation it's a great way to you know almost wrap up the year and sorry lenovo my legion laptop review is going to have to wait until next year because of this Plus, instead of a tech yeah, I've got another pull-back-the-curtain episode revisiting our fun guest from a couple months ago, Allison Goldberg. She and I have similar spirit animals in that we both try to make tech news both fun and funny. So we're going to talk about that for a bit, and we will get to all of that. But first, we have to get to the news of the week. <laughs> Just a friendly reminder that during the month of December, I'm running a giveaway. I'll give you the brief details here. Leave a review for this podcast by visiting www.RateThisPodcast.com slash benefit. Then take a screenshot of that review and send it to contest at com, or you can DM the screenshot to Dead Technology or Benefit of Doubt on Twitter. I'll pick some random names and you'll win one of four items courtesy of our friends from Lenovo. I've gotten some new reviews for this podcast but only a few screenshots have been sent in so make sure you get those in there's two parts of this contest part one review part two screenshot the giveaway is canada and us only sorry about that but shipping is pricey folks i've written up some general stuff on benefit of if you want to read all about it but that's the gist of it get those screenshots in win some stuff and now let's get to the news So, you know that super secret TikTok algorithm that companies have been dousing their drawers over for so many months? Remember how companies were lining up to buy TikTok just so they could get their hands on that magic algorithm? You know how when they open up TikTok, you're basically going to be given a steady stream of content that you'll enjoy because the algorithm is so amazeballs? Well, it turns out the algorithm is based on a complicated equation that measures the relationship vector along the slope of... Okay, I'm just messing with you. It's based on what videos you watch and what videos you like. A New York Times report cites an official TikTok document that basically says that if you watch a video all the way through or like or comment on a video that's a good video. If you scroll past it, that's a bad video. And that's basically it. I mean, that's an algorithm that I could design. It's not rocket science, but here we are. Of course, that doesn't really answer the question as to why the algorithm is so good at feeding you a constant stream of awesome content. Maybe there's like a subroutine in there that says, if you don't know what else to serve, find a dog video. Those always work well, preferably puppies or, you know, kitties doing puppy and kitty things. Insta-like. So anyway, there you have it. TikTok secret sauce is not all that secret, and turns out it's barely a sauce. But they do have hundreds of millions of users, so it clearly works. And speaking of mysterious things that just work, let's talk about a mysterious thing that doesn't work very well: the Earth. At least lately. And to be fair, the Earth actually works just fine. It's just the people living on it that are all screwed up. And if you don't believe me, there's a project set up in Australia that is dedicated to recording events that humanity commits to bring about our own destruction. It's sort of like a black box for Earth, and it's being built in Tasmania, Australia. You remember Australia. That's the country that's basically designed to kill you. And now it's getting a box that's designed to record the events that lead to... Us. Killing. You. It's poetic when you think about it. Anyway, the box will record events that lead up to our demise, probably via climate change, and it will be built of 3-inch thick steel and covered in solar panels. It's designed to last at least 30 to 50 years, so... There's a dark turn. Not only is the company building this to catalog our destruction, but it seems like they think it's going to finish this task within our lifetimes. That's not very optimistic. Where is the data coming from, you might ask? Based on the live feed from the company's website, it looks mostly like Twitter, which, yeah, that's on brand for Twitter, alright. I can't wait for civilizations thousands of years from now to stumble onto my Twitter feed. That will be illuminating. Now, if you ask me, this is a marketing stunt designed to get politicians to finally start making laws to curb our dependence on… basically everything that'll ultimately kill us. I doubt it'll work, but at least Tasmania will get a pretty new big box. So there's that. And speaking of things that might kill you, let's talk about Microsoft Teams. Now, my brand new shiny employer, Digital Trends, is all in on Microsoft services, Teams among them, and I can confirm that the app is... Not awesome. But anyway, it turns out that having Teams installed on your Android phone might actually literally kill you. This week, users reported that Pixel phones weren't able to dial 911 to connect to emergency services. Google confirmed that the bug was related to Android phones that had Teams installed on them, but where Teams wasn't logged in, which, if you ask me, is my favorite way to have Teams on my phone, not logged in so I just have one question about this um what and a follow-up question what Seriously, this is kind of a big deal, and just what the hell could cause this? It seems there's an unintended interaction between the Microsoft Teams app and the underlying Android system. Now, you might be wondering how something like this could possibly happen, and as a former software tester, I can confirm that I never called 911 as part of any test I ever attempted, so I could see how something like this would fly under the radar, but what I don't understand is what the hell Teams had to do to mess all this up in the first place. If you have Teams installed on your phone, but you're not logged in, uninstall it. In fact, if you have it installed on your phone in the first place, you may have already made a wrong turn. So mayday, retreat. Remember, the only good Teams app is an uninstalled Teams app. And speaking of Pixel phones messing you right the hell up, one Pixel user, a game developer by the name of Jane McGonigal, reported an issue with a Pixel phone she tried to send in for repair. Namely, the phone seems to have been stolen en route to Google for repairs, but there's a problem in that the phone was not only stolen, but whoever stole it used it to access her various Google services with the phone being used for 2FA, or more likely already logged into those services to begin with. The perpetrator logged into her Gmail, Drive, Photos, and Dropbox and opened a bunch of photos, presumably looking for nudes. So that was classy. Google investigated and determined that the phone never got to the repair center despite being marked as delivered by the Delivery Service and, thank you very much, U.S. Postal Service. The phone was not wiped because it wouldn't turn on in the first place, hence the need for repair. What's not clear is how the attacker fixed the phone and bypassed security, either a PIN or a fingerprint or whatever. I suppose it's possible that the phone didn't have a password or a PIN, but that's not a good idea. Put a PIN on your phones, people, and apparently... Do your damnedest to wipe the phone first if you ever have to send it in for repairs. And speaking of staying safe... Okay, yeah, I know that one's a bit of a stretch. Sorry, I'll stop now. Instagram has been in the news quite a bit recently, specifically because the social media service is often seen as a detriment to teenage psychological health such as it is. Well, this week, Instagram rolled out some new protection tools for Instagram, including a timeout for getting kids to take a break and some new parental controls. And, oh, wouldn't you know it, those protections came out just in time for the CEO of Instagram to testify before Congress. What a relief. I mean, could you imagine having to testify before Congress without having these in place? And, oh, right, that makes sense. Well, it turns out keeping teens on Instagram and off of TikTok is pretty hard. If Facebook is for old people, Instagram is for slightly less old people, and TikTok is the hip new thing. People still say hip new thing, right? Anyway, TikTok is still H-A-W-T hot, and that's still a thing? I'm being told that that is barely still a thing, so just don't do that. Okay, fine. Anyway, Instagram wants you to know it's perfectly safe for eating disorders, I mean teenagers, but also eating disorders and depression. Right. Got it. Thanks a lot, Instagram. Good work. Holy gas-buddy Batman! And I have to admit, it's been a long time since we've had a gas-buddy reference on this show, so it's nice to bring them up again. And by the way... Still mad at you, Gas Buddy. But last week we talked about Tile selling off their business to Life360, which will allow the family service to provide tile tags and help parents keep track of their teenagers even more better. But this week we found out something a little more Gas Buddy about Life360, namely, they will sell off your data to basically anybody who asks. It turns out Life360 sells location data to over a dozen other outside vendors, and the location data is particularly valuable valuable because of the amount of data and the precision of that data, meaning when you're trying to track your kid, there's a reason to provide precise data as opposed to general location data. Of course, all of this is fully disclosed in Life360's 800-page privacy policy, or however many pages it is, so really, what are you all complaining about? But seriously, employees of the company and their own CEO will actually brag about it when asked. The CEO, Chris Hull, said, quote, We see data as an important part of our business model that allows us to keep the core of Life360 services free for the majority of our users, including features that have improved driver safety and numerous lives. And hey, if we happen to make a few bucks on the side because of it, then it's a win for everybody, right? So basically, Chris Hall's just said what everybody knows but nobody really talks about. If something is free, then you are the product. It's just gross. Reviews for the Sony Xperia Pro Mark One started dropping this week, including from Mr. Mobile and Android Authority, which is the review linked in the show notes. And speaking of the show notes, head on over to twitter.com slash deadtechnology and get every episode of this podcast and the show notes delivered to your inbox every week. Anyway, Eric Zeman has the review of the Sony Xperia Pro Mark One, and not surprisingly, his conclusion is that the phone is best left to professionals. Having tested an Xperia phone in the recent past can confirm. Notably, there are some pro camera features here, which are not all that easy to use, which is why they're called Pro Features. Sony has done a remarkable job in making Pro camera controls easier to use, but apps like Cinema Pro are still ridiculous hills to climb when it comes to mastering them, and this is coming from people who professionally shoot review videos. Sony has really embraced the Phone for Photographers label, and the Xperia Mark 1, Xperia Mark 5, and now the Xperia Pro Mark 1 are all leaning hard into that demographic. While the Xperia 5 has some gaming features, which are nice, overall the phone is designed and built for people who really know what they're doing with a camera and want to translate that experience onto a phone. Sony phones are all impressive and expensive, and Sony seems to feel pretty good about that, unapologetic even, You know, which I'll respect. Probably never buy one myself, but I will respect it. You know how you head over to Wikipedia and you get that banner across the top that says, Please, sir, if it's not too much trouble for you, might you be willing to spare just a few dollars to donate to this worthy cause of keeping Wikipedia free for everyone? It's just a little bit of money, sir. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, if you've ever said yes and tossed them a couple of bucks, you might have felt pretty good about yourself. After all, this is a cause the tech nerds can feel good about. Free information for all! But it turns out Wikipedia is actually swimming in money, and the Daily Dot did some digging. As the report points out, Wikipedia is very close to achieving its 10-year goal of raising $100 million for an endowment... And by the way, we're only on year five of that 10-year goal. So Wikipedia is basically making twice the amount it hoped for five years ago. That seems like a lot for a resource that students aren't allowed to use as a source on term papers. Just saying. Now, the article gets into some technical financial details about endowments and net assets and annual revenue, which... Fun factor, not all the same thing, and I am really bad with money. But suffice it to say that Wikipedia is in no danger of going anywhere, despite the fact that 98% of people who read this message don't give. Seems Wikipedia is doing pretty well on that 2% that's left over, and good for Wikipedia. That's not to say I'll never donate to Wikipedia again but what it does mean is the next time i think about it i'm gonna do my research first i'm sure i'm not the only one to whom this news was surprising and that's just what wikipedia was counting on Last week, we talked about the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 processor coming out of Qualcomm and Hawaii. This week, we get the first phone to run it. It's the Moto Edge X30 that launched in China. Now, this is a China exclusive for now, though speculation has it that Moto will bring this phone to the rest of the world down the line under a different name. But for now, what we have to go on is that this phone will come in at 8 and 12 gigabytes of RAM configurations and 128 or 256 gigabytes of onboard storage. There's an under-display selfie camera option, which is a choice. The selfie camera will be a 60-megapixel sensor, while the back cameras will have dual 50-megapixel sensors for wide and ultra-wide, which is also nice. There's also... Hilariously, a 2-megapixel sensor on the back whose function is, according to Android Authority, currently unknown, as if to say that either A, Moto didn't bother to say what the camera was for, or B, Android Authority didn't bother to look into it. And honestly, I don't blame either one. 2-megapixel cameras are crap and they should go away, but whatever, you get your triple camera setup, Moto. Once again, this phone is only coming to China for the moment. The pricing is fairly decent, and I'll give you the American dollar equivalents. It goes anywhere from $471 up to $627, so it's overall very mid-range. If those cameras are solid, then I could see some real interest in this phone, assuming they don't bring it to America and say it's 800 to to $1,000, in which case they'll discount it a month later, in which, let's face it, that'd be pretty on brand for Motorola. But in the meantime, it's not available anywhere outside of China. So stay tuned. And finally, the Video Game Awards were apparently a thing, and this week they brought out some potentially exciting news. Google Play Games will be coming to Windows 11 PCs in 2022, and just what? That's right, soon you'll be able to, theoretically, play Call of Duty Mobile on your PC or... Among Us, or, I don't know, Google Play games. The announcement was a little light on details, and this was a gaming show after all, and they're nothing if not a 24-7 hype train. But there was talk of moving seamlessly between your phone and computer in some fashion. Honestly, during the Game Awards, it was barely a passing mention, but it's still pretty big news. What I'd like to know is how most PCs around the world are not touch sensitive and games on Google Play are touch optimized. So is there going to be a mouse and keyboard control involved? Will we have to map those controls ourselves? Will the games live on the PC or will they be streamed like Stadia style? There's a lot to find out here. Unfortunately, we'll only have to wait at most a year to find out and Unless, of course, this thing gets delayed because this is a gaming thing after all. I guess we're just lucky that Google's bringing this in 2022 and not following the rest of the gaming industry by announcing now and then shipping it in two years. When you think of stand-up comedy, you think of politics or human behavior or impressions, but rarely do you encounter a comedian whose routine centers around technology. And speaking as someone who thoroughly enjoys comedy and technology, I think that's a tragedy. But Allie Goldberg's literal job is to make technology funny through her comedy and her podcast, Two Girls, One Podcast. So I wanted to talk to her about comedy and tech and why those two don't seem to get along very well and how she does it. So, Ellie, thank you very much for coming on, and let's uh, let's take a few minutes to talk about tech and comedy. Yeah.
1: So, I have some very specific ideas that I would like to share with tech journalists that might be listening. Uh,
0: okay. I that's think... That's pretty much most of my audience, so by all means.
1: Yeah. I think <laughs> that people ignore the human element when they report on tech. So... Hmm. Or they they kind of cover it in a secondary way. But I think that really starting with the humanity of it, like tech has really infiltrated everything. So talking about tech is really just talking about, talking about life to an yeah. extent. But I just think that they talk about like data and there's a real focus on jargon rather than talking about the very human story. So for instance, like something that I thought was so, there were so many amusing things to me about... Um, A couple years ago, this just really stuck out for me as like, oh wow, people are not covering this the way that they could. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when when the Cambridge Analytica thing broke and all the scandals with Facebook and their data, I mean, first of all, everyone was going on Instagram saying hashtag delete Facebook, and it's like the majority of the world didn't even know that Facebook they were owned (laughs) by the same company, (laughs) which is like so (laughs) ridiculous. And I remember at the time, Facebook owned 69 other companies. And I was like, that's a really fitting number for when your data is fucked, you know. But I also think, like, one of the major scandals with them really stemmed from this app called Bikini, which was about getting friends and friends of friends bikini photos. And then Facebook, like, cut off the API or something so they couldn't get friends of friends bikini photos and there was like this outroar and they sued them and so it's like actually this very funny story about spank banks that like, but but that's not how people cover it, right? They cover it as like Facebook not allowing third party apps. I had never heard
0: any of this before so by all means. (laughs) Yeah,
1: so there was a lot of coverage about like Facebook cutting off third party apps data or this or that. And it was just covered in like a very technical way, but there were actually these like very amusing human stories behind it. Um, So I, so I just think starting with the humanity and there is so much comedy. I mean, I will grant tech journalists that of course, like there's an element to which their job is presumably serious. Um, But I do think if you want to make that news more mainstream and accessible, I think starting with those Human elements and not being afraid to be a little snarky because what's interesting to me oh, yeah. is that um, most <laughs>
0: preach sister. <laughs> so
1: I mean, so much news is covered in a kind of snarky way nowadays, but tech is still covered like, oh, we have to button up and be very serious. And I'm just saying, like, unbutton the top button. You know what I mean? Like, you okay. don't have to button all the way up, which is funny because like nobody even wears buttons in tech. Everybody's very right. But um, I mean, that's not that's not funny. That's that's not. Don't quote me there. But uh, I. Yeah, So I think starting with the human elements and like digging a little deeper, like whenever there's been a data breach, like what was actually revealed? Like, what does that mean? And, yeah. or I don't know, there was a scandal with, um, like, uh, using Grinder to, you know, figure out locations of different, um, you know, I, I don't remember the details enough, but, you know, it was something, you know, I went back to blowjobs, you know what I mean? Like, it was, the, yeah. the scandal was data, but if you look deeper, it was about blowjobs. Or, like, for instance, the right. running app Strava was actually revealing the location of secret U.S. military bases because people were tracking their runs. And then you'd see, right. like, oh, there's nothing. And then there's, like, these random tracks in this spot in Afghanistan. And so, but so there's something, I mean, it's, so there's something there, I think, about that it's like, oh, once again, the scandal was, like, giving away locations of secret military bases, which is huge. But if you really look deep, bear, deeper, there's also this kind of fun story about like sharing your running habits and like what's, right, you know, and I don't know what, that's just
0: a, And what's up with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't.
0: <laughs> isn't, isn't that just bragging at some point? Like Right,
1: like I don't have the joke handy, but I think there are like fun things to do there or at least just to make it really relatable that ultimately it was like yeah. people tagging their runs and you know. I don't know
0: the joke. And think, yeah, yeah, and I and I, I definitely agree with that. And what the way I usually try to approach it is, I'll look at the, you know, not necessarily the data, but the implications of that data. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you know, Apple with the with the recent CSAM um, uh, deb- deb- debacle, I guess would probably be an appropriate word mm-hmm. for it. But you know, you have a you have a company that is you know, has been beating the privacy war drum for three years. Like, everything's about privacy, 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 privacy. By the way, we're going to tell your mom if you say fuck a lot.
1: Right, right, You know, I mean, right.
0: that's basically what Apple did. And, like, you know, a lot of people are, are talking about, like, oh, you know, it's on device, and it should be my device, and you, I decide what I do on my device. No, this is active surveillance, folks. I mean, like, this is, you know, and so that's, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. kind of, I, I, I like to look for the... Either the ironic twist behind it or just the, the logical fallacies. that, mm-hmm. that. like, mm-hmm. that, But I think
1: you, that, you also know. did the same thing where you brought it to that human element of, like, it's mm-hmm. going to tell on you if you say fuck. You know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. And I just feel like a lot of people spend too much time on, like, very technical details, which can be important. But I think, like, leading mm-hmm. with that human element or irony, as you just mentioned...
0: Yeah, and, and I think for a lot of people, tech is just not very – tech basically, you know, at the, at the risk of using Apple's words, but tech just works. And I don't think necessarily people are interested in the how.
1: No, but I know what you mean. It's like the, it's focusing more on the impact on humans.
0: Yeah, you know, you want to you want to find out like how is this going to affect me? Like, okay, that sucks for the people in Afghanistan who are, now have to live on those bases that Strava just, you know, totally Broadcast exposed. Location, yeah. But like, you know, how is how is that going to affect me as 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 a runner or as someone who never runs, mm-hmm. who never uses Strava? You know, why is that why is that a big story for me? Right. So, and okay. I think
1: it's like, yeah, and some of that is looking at, okay, even if you don't run, like I I hate running, but it's like everyone's sharing things online that feels harmless or innocent. And I think we do need to think twice about what we just opt in to share, right? Like there's really no need right. for anyone to know your run, but um, I just think there's going to, there's going to be so many more issues like that where there are unforeseen consequences, you know?
0: Right. And I think as, as people who know technology, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's our job to let people know, you know, Hey, Maybe you can't track your run with Strava anymore, but here's why this could t- potentially turn into a bad thing, you know, five years down the line. And that that part is the kind of the part that I suck at because, like, I have zero future vision whatsoever. Like, if it's not a, happening to me right now, I just don't. Yeah, um, but that's okay but, because,
1: as you mentioned, there's yeah. also the irony of the moment. And I also just think there's, like, I don't know. I think it's so amusing how everyone's like, the robots are coming for your jobs. It's like, first of all, Siri won't even fucking listen to me. I have to repeat myself 12 times. But also, it's like, people are got. Gonna- <laughs> well,
0: in, in Siri's defense, you are using Siri. Oh,
1: so, all of them, so. though. Like Alexa, like they don't listen to me. Yeah. Google Home. Yeah. My Google Home, it's like constantly just repeating itself and asking. I, I'm sorry. I don't know how to do that. But um but, yeah. but the thing that's funny to me, too, in terms of, like, looking at what you were saying, how you don't think you're really good at the future, I bet you're really good at it, but you're comparing yourself probably to literal futurists, which is also a pressure. Probably. Because, for instance, like, everyone's screaming about the robots are coming for our jobs. It's automation that's coming for your jobs, and still no right. one's preparing for it. Like, everyone's going to holler and scream when suddenly taxi drivers are obsolete. And it's like, hello, we've been seeing this coming for years and years and years. Like. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen with been? self-driving cars? Right. <laughs> so I think it's um, making those, really taking those impacts on humanity seriously. And yeah, mm-hmm. but so, I mean, there's so much about self-driving cars, but I really feel like there should be way <laughs> more headlines around, there's going to be insane implications. Like I think yes. there's this test, there's this thing you can do. MIT has this ethics test. Have you done this yet? It's very fascinating. I have not. So they have something about self-driving cars where you go on and you're the car and you have to make ethical decisions. So like, oh. so right. So like there's, okay. there's a uh, school children running across the street, but if you save them, you sacrifice yourself by hitting a building. Right. So like, what do you choose? And I think people are not even considering like, this is going to be insane like this is
0: a question that actually has to be answered yes
1: this is a question that has to be <laughs> yeah. answered and that i think is a very fascinating human story that most people still don't know that i think is going to be the biggest roadblock and extremely Um, impactful to humanity? What do you program? Do you sacrifice the driver? Do you sacrifice the kids? Who gets to make that call? Like, who are the ethicists that are deciding that decision? Elon Musk. Exactly, right? And so, like, there are (laughs) are huge things with future implications. Another thing that I thought was, like, so amusing that, like, nobody really reported on, or not in, like, a mainstream kind of way, but, like, Google had this ethics committee and within, like, a month it was disbanded because it turned out one of the members of the committee had this, like, extremely racist past and I'm like, on the ethics committee, right? And it's like... Cool, 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 cool. So, like, we're we're all fucked if the mainstream public doesn't realize this. You know what I mean? Because the robots will embody the flaws of their creators. So if we are creating Mm -hmm. robots and these are the ethicists behind it, you know, and I mean, again, like, I don't mean to, like, rag on ethicists. I think there are incredible ethicists out there. But, like, this is something that really needs to be looked at now. People don't think about it. But I think there's a lot of... Uh, comedy potentially there. You know, think about how many movies and jokes there are about robots, you know what
0: I mean? Oh, yeah. Everybody well, loves mean, I,
1: robots. It's
0: it's funny that you brought this up because I literally tweeted this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, where is it? Uh, for those of, of you afraid of robots taking over and AI being super evil destroyer of humans, you can relax for the moment. YouTube's AI still hasn't figured out that I only watch the Cubs recaps when they win.
1: Yeah yeah
0: so i mean like we've got a long way to go before that happens yeah that's the thing is like
1: we have time to prepare but it's just like you know we're gonna fast forward 10 years and everyone's gonna be pissed as though we didn't see this coming you know um but yeah but but that's also why it's not really robots i mean as you are well aware and all your listeners it's really automation like what are the little things that are going to make um i don't know admin jobs obsolete you know um, yeah,
0: well, I, some would argue that they already are obsolete, but anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? But it's going to be those
1: little changes that are taken over by technology, which, which is great, you know? And then and then you get into, like, Andrew Yang's stuff with universal basic income and, like, how yes. the only successful model, really, but the one that I think sh- people should be looking at is, like, in Alaska, where they um, share the profits from the oil I don't know too many of the details, right? But so it's like, okay, so what is the plan if automation does create profits in that way? Like, I don't know, but I also don't really understand how universal basic income could work because I don't know if you give everyone a thousand dollars aren't landlords just gonna increase the rent by a thousand dollars I really don't understand it but anyway I think this sounds all... <laughs>
0: yeah that sounds that sounds about right but yeah that is a that is a rabbit hole that we uh, it, ironically in a tech podcast we cannot go down so but uh, mm-hmm. but anyway um so yeah I wanted to uh, yeah but I mean it, Really, I just wanted to talk about like, you know, how we can how we can make this stuff approachable. And I think we've covered that. So I wanted to, uh, you know, thank you for coming on. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, have a chat.
1: Well, I love chatting about this stuff, so no problem.
0: Our next guest on the podcast is a man who has brought to us what we have been craving for decades. No, I'm not talking about autocorrect, predictive text, or other AI-based phone utilities you use every day. No! This guy brought us something truly useful, new Stargate material. He's an expert in AI and a lead AI evangelist at Google. In cooperation with the Companion app and executive producer Brad Wright, he used AI to develop brand new scripts for known and beloved Stargate characters. And now he's here to talk a little bit more about that process. Lawrence Baroni, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun.
0: This is very exciting. Um, so the, the, you have basically, you're kind of an AI guru. Basically, you you live what so many PR people tell me I should be interested in. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm getting massive imposter syndrome whenever anybody says that because, like you know, I I get to work with AI, I get to do fun stuff with it, but I think I'm far from being a guru. Um, It's uh, fair enough. I I, I rub shoulders with people who've had PhDs like for longer than I've been in the industry and stuff like that, and I like to see myself as just a guy who knows code and who know how to apply AI to code and then to start teaching the world how to do that instead of kind of getting bogged down in either all of the hype stuff around AI or all of the really difficult math around AI. So uh, yeah, that's- There yeah. is so seen... much
0: hype. Oh yeah, <laughs> have you ever seen that
2: meme? It's like, I think it's from Russell Crowe from one of the movies and he's got all the math floating around his head. And you know, yes. it's like usually, usually when people talk about AI, I like, tend to get that image and I'm like, I want to be the person who changes that. And who tries to, at, at Google, we have three word missions. And my three word Mm -hmm. mission, I cheated a little bit, but my three word mission was make AI easy. Uh, So it's four words, really, but don't tell anybody. But then the the whole idea is like, if I can blow away all that math and kind of make it easy for people, if you know a little bit of coding, you could be involved in machine learning. And if you're involved in machine learning, you could be involved in AI and, you know, being able over the last few years to grow that huge and now people see me as some kind of like father figure in AI or guru, but I'm not even close. But we'll we'll keep that secret between you, me, and your viewers.
0: Of listens. course, of course. Yeah, of course. And in and, and see my interview style is always be the dumb guy in the room and ask the smart people the questions. So, I mean, in this particular case, we are definitely meeting that criteria. So, <laughs> um but I really appreciate you coming on. Um uh, the the main reason that we are talking is because you were involved with a project called Stargate AI which was a fun project yeah. and as it turns out absolutely drop dead hilarious project um, with uh, executive producer Brad Wright who originally created the Stargate series and all the different uh, spin-offs thereof and um, he was he he wanted to do a Stargate project where he brought the cast together to do something but he couldn't figure out what to do and and you stepped forward and said hey i've had some thoughts and what ended up happening was well actually why didn't i go ahead and let you uh describe just real high level like what you did how we got brand new stargate content
2: yeah oh wow i mean i could spend hours talking about that but i'll try to keep it quick um so i appreciate I, that <laughs> so so what i did was i um i I guess it was multiple uh, fold of what I wanted to approach it. Number one was the the primary goal that I had was a lot of what I like to do is to teach people what AI is and just as importantly what AI is not. And gotcha. you know this was an excellent opportunity to do that. This was an excellent opportunity to work on Stargate again. Um, I had done some work with Stargate many years ago, um, so I did some stuff for Stargate Universe if you remember that show. And you know when uh, finally. I, when, I went on, oh, very fondly. I went on to Twitter and I saw like a, a video of uh, Brad talking to a person called Lawrence Cow. And, you know, Brad was like saying, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could get like all 300 plus scripts of Stargate and feed them into an AI and have it re- create a script? Wouldn't that be great? And I'm like, Oh God, that would be brilliant. But the, the, the and it was like the, the, it was also the perfect opportunity for me to help people like break through the hype cycle around the AI to say, Well, okay, well, if we do this, it's not going to be some kind of magic robot that replaces Brad and can write scripts that are coherent and all of these kind of things. But what we can do is we can show the type of things that are possible. And then from there, we can ideate new solutions and new things that may be useful to people going forward, people like Brad or actors and those kind of things. So I mm-hmm. wanted to approach it in that way. I saw this tweet going out. Joe Malazi, who's an executive producer on Stargate Universe, had retweeted it. I follow Joe. I saw him do this. And like, you know, so that's why I answered, like, hey, wouldn't it be great if you know somebody who's like an AI lead in the world's biggest AI company, you know? And then Brad <laughs> kind of brought me on board. Uh, so then we want, um, so we had the initial discussions around this. And what I did not want to do, and I think everybody agreed with, was come up with one of these things where you feed it a bunch of scripts. It throws out a new script, and then you act out that script. And there's like um, there's no constraints when you do something like that. What I wanted mm-hmm. to do was like, let's look at the realistic constraints that a script writer has. And in this case, one very realistic constraint was, well, we only had Michael Shanks, we only had um, uh, Amanda Tapping. I keep calling her Samantha Tapping. I always confuse <laughs> Samantha. Samantha. Uh, we only had David Hewlett. And then later we only had Jewel States. And like all yeah. four of those never appeared together in a script. Right. 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 You know, so, so if we are going to do this and we're going to throw all the scripts in and have it try to write something for those four, it just wouldn't work. And, you know, when you start throwing everything in, and uh, the way AI works, which I can talk in a moment, but you start dealing with mathematical probabilities, right? So if you open the scene with like you're in the gate room and the gate is whirring, the mathematical probability, if you look at all the previous scripts, is that probably Jack O'Neill is in the room, but we didn't right. have Jack O'Neill. We didn't have um, Richard Dean Anderson available to do the reading. So mm-hmm. you have a constraint there. So we want to, like, let's, like, talk about, like, if we forget about how all of these other AI-generated movies have been done, let's try to do something different and work within the constraints that a writer has. And one of those clear constraints was we only have these actors, right? And and then we also, we want to create vignettes where it's, you know, we want to make sure everybody has an equal voice so we want to create some scripts where it's only two of them. We want to create yeah. some solo scripts where it's only one of them. And one of those actually turned into a great prank on uh, David Hewlett. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so it's... So if we start doing that, then it changes fundamentally how you would build the AI models to do this kind of thing. Cause you're not building a quote unquote AI. By the way, at Google, we tend not to use the AI as a noun. You know, we, so okay. Like, a lot of people say like you build an AI and I'm falling into that too, but like you wouldn't build an AI model um, with all of the scripts because that just wasn't work. So how would we solve this problem? And that's when it began to get really interesting because then I was like, okay, if I can start extracting every word that um, Samantha Carter said um, in every episode and then you know start doing an analysis on those words to build up a model of her vernacular. And then I start building another model that says, well, when somebody says X, how does she respond? And start building all of those models so that then when I say something to her or somebody says something to this model, you map that input thing to as close as possible to something that has been said previously. And you say that to the model and then the model will come back and say something back to you, you know, that kind
0: of this thing. Almost, this almost sounds a little bit like predictive text when you're typing on your phone, when you type like the first three, you know, I type, um, I am on my way to the, and, and my keyboard guesses that I'm about to say store or target yeah. or something like that. So it seems similar to that.
2: Yeah, very similar. And like, you know, if you think about how a model like that would be trained on what you say, as opposed to what I say, you know, you might be saying, I am going to, and your predictive text might throw up Starbucks, because you say that a lot to people. I'm going to Starbucks. Yeah. My text might say the pub. because <laughs> yeah, I say right. that to people, And as a result, the model comes up with different predictive text based on different people. You know, so so if you're writing a script like this for Stargate, you want the model for Samantha Carter to sound like Samantha Carter. You want the model for, you know, uh, Rodney McKay to sound like Rodney McKay. And as a result, we had to train all of these different models with two types of, actually three types of predictive text. So mm-hmm. you and I watch a TV show and we see action in a TV show and that kind of thing. But what we're creating here is a script, and the script is slightly different in the sense of like a script. We can break it down into the scene headings. Which might be, for example, interior gate room day, yeah. And then there's action descriptions, which are like, you know, the Stargate activates and is spinning. And then there's dialogue. So if you think about like dialogue from a character, so you might want the character to respond to dialogue from another character. You might want the character to respond to an action description. You know, mm. like for example, Samantha Carter might say, of oh, activation" or something like that. Or you might want the character to respond to text from scene description. So that's three separate models that we're already building for each character. And then in addition to that, right, Right. we have to look at the output of all those models and it will give a calculated probability, you know, if this is the probability that these people would say something. And then for the sake of assembling the script, I took the one with the highest probability, plop that into the script as the next thing, and then repeat, rinse and repeat. And as a result, you continue to generate scripts. And now we have something that's fundamentally much more complex and fundamentally much more interesting. Um, but there's a flaw. Can you see the flaw?
0: It's like when you make a copy of a copy of a copy and it, it degrades quality over time.
2: Exactly. So then, you okay. know, for example, if I have a scene description and I have all these models and they give me an output, and I say, well, the one with the highest score said 60% likelihood that Samantha Carter would say, boo. You know, so then I'll put boo into the script. And then I give it to every model. And then the top score coming out might be, I don't know, Michael Shanks goes, ouch. You know, and that's 40%, and that number (laughs) declines over time. And then as a result, the Mm. quality of the text will decline over time. And these things tend to deteriorate into like gibberish and nonsense. So, but we actually, with a lot of fine tuning and a lot of work and a lot of analysis of scripts, we're ending up getting something quite coherent and not turning into gibberish within two or three um, sections. But then what happens is the story meanders. Uh, so, yeah, if yeah. a writer like Brad is writing a scene, he has a beginning uh, of the scene. He knows where he wants the scene to go, so he has an end mm-hmm. in mind. And then he knows to the characters they were in the scene, and he's going to work them through. They might have an objective to overcome, and then it feels like a story. But an AI that's just throwing in—I said it as a noun again—but an AI model that's just throwing in predictive text right. like this, you know, it's just you know calculating probabilities of the next thing that somebody would say. But it doesn't have that idea. It doesn't have that notion of an end of the scene in mind that it would actually be okay. added towards. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm working on. Hopefully, if we do another table read, um, fingers crossed. You know, that's one yeah. of the things I'm building. Is like say, okay, well, what if we have? We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to have all this predictive stuff happening. We're also going to, to start at the end and work backwards. With okay. you can have a negative prediction, right? So you're used to a forward-looking prediction. So then you could have two models, one working backward, one working forward, and then do some calculations to have these made in the middle. And then you can have maybe a more coherent story. And so that's one of the things that we're working on.
0: Enjoying this interview? Did you know that there are over 10 more minutes of time where we talked that ended up on the bonus version? The full interview is available to all of my patrons right now over at patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. For as little as $2 per month, you can get in on the ground floor of this podcast and help support the show. Plus, you'll get additional benefits like access to my discord, early podcasts, bonus live shows and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. That's 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 patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. And if you don't want to be a patron, that's okay too. Full interviews become available at the beginning of each new month. So, for example, trimmed interviews in January will have the full versions on February 1st. I don't want you to miss out. Just head over to patreon.com slash benefit of the and you can listen to the full interviews even if you don't subscribe, because I still want you to love the show. There are more great options for helping me out at benefitofadowd.com/slash support. That's benefitofthedoubd.com support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadoubt.com slash support. I hope you visit. I hope you take in some full interviews. And as always, I thank you for listening. So uh, so how does like uh, a, a, a machine learning model or an AI model, how does it get around the obstacle? Like let's say throughout the entire history of Stargate and we're talking 10 seasons for the Prime, uh, for SG-1, yeah. 5 seasons for Atlantis, Atlantis, and then 2 seasons for... Let's say in all that time, a character said, I need to go to the bathroom only once in that entire time. Presumably there was a response to that Like that was only said one time. So like, what if that came up in the AI script that was being generated? Would that necessarily always be the same... Call and response, if you know what I mean. I mean, like, is that, does that question make sense? I guess would be the first it, question.
2: Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. So, um, I mean, the first constraint there would be like, you know, if character A says, I need to go to the bathroom and we want to know character B's response. If character mm-hmm. B is one of the characters that we've created models for, right? Uh, the, oh, the, okay. That's fair. Right? So the people with the, the most dialogue, like Jack O'Neill, we didn't have a model for Jack O'Neill, right? Uh, so you know, that would be the first thing. So say assuming we do have character A and we do have character B and we have that scenario where character A says I want to go to the bathroom and character B says second door on the left or you know something like yeah, that Yeah 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 then the model for character B would return a very high probability of that phrase second door on the left but it wouldn't be 100%. Um, but as I was picking the highest probabilities um, and that's probably likely what would have, be that it would have given output and also I mentioned that there was like four different types of models per character but it got even more complex than that because there's two ways that you can build models. And one way is called a sequence-to-sequence model where it's an input as a sequence and the output is a sequence. So the input yeah. is, I want to go to the bathroom and the output is second door on the left. And then the second one is where the input is like a bag of words and the output is a bag of words. And the hmm. bag of words inputs, every word, here's where it gets all sciencey and cool, is that when we do something like this, every word um, is a vector in higher dimensional space. So, okay. for example, for a character like Carter, I think her total uh, vocabulary was close to 9,000 words. And usually they say the dimensionality of space that you do that is the fourth root of the number of words. So I think in my mm. case, it's about eight or nine dimensions. You can calculate it for yourself. So then if you imagine every word that she has ever said is a vector in eight dimensional space right and now if you want to, her to continue saying something or somebody say something to her then you calculate what that vector looks like and then you find the vector that's most likely to match that and then that becomes the output
0: so so when you're building a model like this and you know i we keep coming back to the script because cause that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about here but when you're building a model like an ai model about, on a script like this does the AI generate? Does the AI model? Uh, you're training me, so yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm working. Doing my job. Does the does the AI model spit out one word at a time, one phrase at a time, one yep. sentence at a time? Like, how does that, or or can you configure that?
2: Uh, so I mentioned earlier there were two types of models. So the transformer architecture model will spit out a phrase. Uh, the okay. The LSTM architecture model will spit out a word. And then I have to call that multiple times and build up sentences with those words. And, or should I say, it will will spit out a subword. The reason for that is if I get techie for a second, like if I go back to Samantha Carter, for example, she had almost 9,000 words that she used in the show. So then every time you make a calculation for the next word, you're calculating a probability across 9,000 words, which means you have a massive model And it also means that, you know, you got to look at the probability of every single word. So even the most likely word is probably only like a 5% probability because the other 95% is spread across the other 8,999 words. Um, So, you know, I ended up changing it to do subwords, which, um, so then if you, so for example, I'd say it's subword carter, you know, the subword car and ter. And so you can have her entire vernacular in a lot less tokens if you use subwords. And then so and started changing them to do subwords so then it can be more accurate in the number that it's getting because it's distributed across less tokens. And then it would. And that's why we end up getting the the habit of it creating new words, because it would take, you know, one token from one word, another token from another word and then stick them together. You know, I think one of the questions that we had during the show was like somebody asked, like if Samantha and Jack um, had a baby together. I was like, well, we we could call it sack. <laughs> you know, like, there you uh, go. You know, or what was it, jam? You know, because then you're just taking the subwords of Jack and Sam and kind of like splurging them together, that kind of thing. So yeah, so to answer your question, the 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 phrases one on the transformer model were full phrases, the word-based one would be subwords that it would then glue together. So when you go to the okay. script, whenever there's made up words, it's using those glued together subwords.
0: From the time that you took on the project to the time that you actually spit out workable scripts that the actors could sit down and table read? Like, what kind of... Are we talking days, weeks, months, years? Uh, (sighs) And where I'm going with this is, would it have been easier to just write a new script?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It it would have been, of course, much easier to write a new script, but that would have defeated Mm -hmm. the point of the project. I mean, we really wanted this to be a science project. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the science project is like, what kind of thing is possible if we really apply some, like, innovative solutions to it and, you know, and and have some fun with it, too? You know, I could probably science the crap out of it a lot more and spend many more months on it and come up with something that was, you know,
0: much more coherent. But
2: we had the constraint of we were doing the table read at a particular time and date, and I was doing this in my spare time. And I was going to say
0: and you're <laughs> you're off the clock so <laughs> yeah
2: my day job is rather demanding so this was definitely a a, a, a work of passion because uh yeah. you know uh, Brad is such a great guy to work with he's so much fun listen to his podcasts He's so inspirational so it was wonderful to be able to like you know rub shoulders with him once more i did it briefly sure. in the past and and to be able to do this and so it became a passion work as a result of that How much time? Um, To be honest, the bulk of the time was spent in getting the data correct. Uh, Because scripts are unstructured data. Uh, They're a great big wall of text, but we wanted Uh to be able to say, okay, well, let's pull out a piece of dialogue from say Carter from the script. And this piece of dialogue is in response to what? Is someone else talking to her? Is it in response to something that's in an action description? Is it mm-hmm. the second line of a piece of dialogue that she spoke? The first line of, and to be yeah. able to do all of this kind of deep querying was, you know, you can't just throw scripts into an AI and have it write a. Scene. So that thing took the most time, and I ended up, uh, you know, when I told Brad I'm doing this, he said I was nuts, but he really was happy with it. it was like I, I created a new language. Um, so there's a there's a language in computing called XML, an extensible okay. language. So I just use an extension on XML to create a new markup language that I call SML script markup language. And oh, then wow. we okay. formatted all of the screenplays into SML. And then <laughs> I think that was the, the hardest part of this. And then once I had stuff in SML, now I could go and say, ha ha, you know, uh, give me every piece of line written by Samantha Carter in response to an action description. Oh, and while i ran it, give me that action description. And now I have sequence to sequence data Action description followed by Samantha's response. Action description followed by Samantha's response. And then I could take what was pretty much a generic off-the-shelf piece of code. And uh, the little secret is that code is published, is public, it's on our TensorFlow.org site, and it's actually used to demonstrate machine translation. The sample is used to demonstrate Portuguese to English, where here's a Portuguese sentence, here's an English sentence, here's how you can use a transformer to translate between them. And I just had to adapt that slightly where the idea is like, you know, this isn't a translation, but here's a set of text in, here's the desired text out, which is a very similar model from a high level perspective. And say, okay, my desired, my piece of text in is a scene description. My desired text out is how Samantha would respond to that. So calculate that for me and give me that, you know, response, that kind
0: of thing. Very cool. Very cool. Well, you know, I, we could, like you said at the beginning, we could talk about this for days. Um, But I think my, uh, I think, I know you have time constraints and I think my audience is only going to take so much Stargate talk before we have to uh, go ahead and pull the plug. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and roll out the red carpet for you now and uh, you can tell us uh, anything you want, anything you have going on right now, um, how we can find you on the Internet, uh, any projects that you have going on. You mentioned Coursera and TensorFlow and whatever. This is the time for you to pimp your stuff. Oh, wow.
2: Sure. Uh, So a few things I'm working (laughs) on is, um, I mean, the YouTube channel that I primarily create content for is the youtube.com slash TensorFlow channel. So anybody who's interested in learning more about AI and machine learning and all that kind of stuff, that's the place to go. Um, If you're a coder, if you're a programmer. um, If Mm -hmm. you are not, uh, but you're still interested in it as a topic, um, I've just recently finished filming as a course that is going to go on HarvardX, edX, Called AI for Anyone. Um, I believe it's cool. actually launching in January, and that's where I kind of teach, as the name suggests, um, the hype cycle around AI, what it really is, how it works, um, and you know, the, the reality around it. To try and you know put you into the RI holiday camp of the trough of disillusionment, so that you can start being productive, um, you know, right, rising up through productivity and follow the path that like David Hewlett, Rodney McKay took, and I actually use that as an example in the course. Um, that will be one. And then, yeah, other things, find me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Al Moroni, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I seem to get more engagement on LinkedIn than I do on Twitter. I don't know why. Um, and then, like, I've authored a number of books on the topic, uh, AI and Machine Learning for Coders and AI and Machine Learning for On-Device Development are the two recent ones that I've done, but they're selling quite nicely and keeping me happy. Uh, so, Excellent. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And, yeah, um, we are in discussions about, like, what we can do for the future, uh, with like uh, things in the sci-fi realm, such as Stargate, and you know, can we take this further, and what's going to happen with it, and stuff like that. But nothing to announce at this time.
0: Cool, cool. Well, it's it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and just letting you letting you spill your font of knowledge over uh, over me. It's it's been a fascinating conversation for me, and I know my audience appreciated. And I, I want I would hope to uh, have you on again sometime.
2: Yeah, please do. I'd love it
0: so that's gonna do it for this episode of the podcast i'd like to thank lawrence maroney for hopping on with me and talking about stargate i mean ai of course i meant ai I'd like to thank Allison Goldberg for chatting about the funnies of tech news. Please consider subscribing to this podcast if you liked what you heard, and if you really liked what you heard, leave a review, and don't forget to screenshot that and send it in for a chance to win some fun tech goodies from our friends at Lenovo. Once again, I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.